0: Hello, and welcome to this as of yet unnamed podcast. If you are listening on the Synopsis podcast, we have made a quick pivot to Russia and Ukraine given the events in the news. Um, <clears throat> there's obviously a lot going on, and to bring us all up to speed, I wanted to introduce our two uh, panelists, guests for today's episode Mike, longtime contributor to the Synopsis podcast. You know him if you're listening uh, on the Synopsis podcast. Mike was a former technical recruiter in Ukraine and has only recently left the country in the wake of the violence that's going on. And Andrew is an assistant director at the Eurasian Center at the Atlantic Council. Um, So, gentlemen, welcome to today's podcast, the point of which is to answer the question to our American listeners of how did we get here? What brought us to this point where Russia has launched a full-scale land war invasion with another country on the European continent?
1: Well, hey, you actually forgot the most important point about how me and Andrew both got here. Oh, yes, of course. Sorry. <laughs> so I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the east of the country out near Kharkiv, though I also spent some time living out in the west near Jatomer. Um Andrew has a pretty similar circumstance. He was a Peace Corps volunteer as well, um, serving in the – Andrew?
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I was a Peace Corps volunteer with Michael. We trained together near Zhatomir um about two hours west of kiev and then i served uh down south in odessa oblast in bessarabia
0: yeah so um basically no one better that i could not find anyway you know i'm sure there's better people out there but uh these are these are the best two chuckle schmucks i could get on to discuss this point so um we wanted yeah so let's get right into it how did we get here uh we want to bring our listeners up to speed with the history of Russia and Ukraine because there is a lot of musings, um, some of them coming right out of Putin's mouth himself, uh, about you know a lot of explanations and rationale behind why Ukraine should be quote reincorporated into Russia. So let's start all the way at the very beginning. Uh, I you know when I took college history there was something something about Kiev and roofs. Um, aren't Russia and Ukraine basically the same? They're the same people, right? Same history. Uh, you know they've
1: always been together, right? That's true. All right. Well, I'll take. I guess I can take this one to start. If you want, um, and you can jump in as uh, as my memory fails me. Um, but yes, it's true that Russia and Ukraine both have a common historical root in the city of Kiev. Uh, that is where the Kievan Rus came from. Uh, it was sort of like a Slavic empire populated and led by you know these Viking settlers that came down uh, the rivers from the from the Baltic. Um, Eventually, the and Rus splintered into these different principalities. Uh, Moscow being one of the large ones, but uh, Moscow lagged actually significantly further behind the development of Kiev. You've probably even seen an internet meme going around of like, "Oh, this is what Kiev looked like, you know, in uh, 1100, and then 1200, and 1300, and it's like these glorious palaces and uh, cathedrals, and then you know the pictures of Moscow is just a bunch of mud and trees, and because uh, that's essentially what it was, you know, for a long time." Um, Andrew, you have anything you want to add?
2: No. You- I'm with you thus far. You're, You're exactly spot on.
1: I mean, the question of whether or not they're the same, I mean, obviously they had a common history, splintered apart, were sort of absorbed into different empires um particularly once the mongols came around in the 1200s that's really when uh, the whole thing was administered more by them and they didn't have as much contact with one another um and then later on ukraine was absorbed into the russian empire um at least parts of it were whereas other parts were part of the polish-lithuanian empire the austro-hungarian empire so i mean the, the whole territory of ukraine has had a history that i would mark as uh very different from that of Moscow. Um, Ukraine also was home to the Cossacks, which play a very, very big role in Ukrainian identity, uh, the way they see themselves as being a more pluralist and democratic society, as opposed to the authoritarian and like very centralized government style uh, that dominates the the Muscovite Empire.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, thank you. Yeah, no, I think that's really important to start there, because there has been lots of noise uh, that we've been discussing or now we've been discussing, Putin has been mentioning, you know, again, about the historical interconnectivity of the two cultures and nations. Uh, so I think that's important to start right at the beginning. Andrew, unless there's anything you want to add here, I kind of want to, Mike alluded to it, is there anything we need to jump in on the mid-century, really before the Soviet Union?
2: No, I think Mike's exactly right. Certainly parts of Ukraine ruled under the Russian Empire, parts under the Lithuanian, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Um, but the Ukrainian language kind of developed um, alongside but separately from Russia and that's kind of one of the big questions we want to talk about today it's still relevant yeah
0: yeah can you actually get into that because um we were discussing prior um, about the similarity the perceived similarities of the two languages I think probably a lot of folks in the West think oh it's like what what's the difference it's like you know basically Spanish and Italian right
2: yeah so I mean certainly Ukrainian and Russian similar similar alphabets um, but, Mike, you can correct me here. I believe, as far as I understand, right, the, the lexical similarities between Ukrainian and Russian are about 60, 63 percent, something like that. And when, Sam, you said uh, Spanish and Italian, um, Spanish and Italian are in the, the high 80s, around 90 percent of, like, mutually intelligible lexical similarities. So, um, right, we think of Spanish and Italian certainly as different languages, though similar, Um and so, Ukrainian and Russian actually have fewer similarities than, than two languages that we recognize already as distinct.
1: I, I, so distinct important languages note, yeah, yeah, to be sure. So, 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 by mutually intelligible, we mean that speakers of one language can understand clearly the speakers of the other language. Um, there are cases where Italians, if they speak slowly, have reported being understood by Spaniards and vice versa. The same is not true of Ukrainians and Russians. Russians do not understand Ukrainian. It is actually one of the main ways that they've been catching uh, Russian saboteurs in the cities right now during this conflict is, you know, asking them to pronounce difficult Ukrainian words, um, like, like, or whatever, even I'm messing it up right now. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Um, it's like, yeah, and they're switching all of their communications to Ukrainian because Russians do not understand it. Now, Ukrainians understand Russian because they have all this exposure to Russian media and obviously they share, you know, a common history under the Soviet empire, um, but, you know, these, these two languages split significantly earlier on in their development than, than languages like Italian and, and Spanish, right? Um, Ukrainian really dates back to an old language called Ruthenian, uh, which is well-documented but still sort of muddy in the way that we understand it, uh, which is sort of like an East Slavic language um, native to the land of Ukraine. Also, the Polish-Lithuanian comp- Commonwealth um, really became more associated with the, comp- with the Cossacks later on like, the 1600s. Um, it was different enough um, and had a sufficient base in the country that the Russian Empire, starting in the early 1800s, saw that it needed to be banned. Um, so, if that shouldn't in- that should really inform everyone listening just how different these two languages actually are in reality, um, Ukrainian actually is a- more similar to Polish and Belarusian than it is to Russian. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Andrew, um, anything you want to add? Because if not, I actually have a follow up question about language that we can maybe get to later. But
2: no, all set. Go for it.
0: Yeah, um, <clears throat> just on the topic of language, this might actually fit in a little bit later on in the history. But I know that there was a de Russification, for lack of a better word, in Ukraine, um, moderately. De Ukrainianization. No, reasonably... de Russianization in Ukraine, right? De That's communization. No, no, not, not, not decommunization. Insofar as it wasn't, um, didn't Ukraine change the official language from Russia to Ukrainian relatively recently?
2: They've certainly made a push, uh, you know.
0: I don't think Ukraine Russian was
1: ever an official language of Ukraine.
0: Okay. Okay. Because I know, I know when I've talked with don't, you. Don't language,
1: quote me. But, don't quote me on that. But yeah, if, okay. if you are, you're probably alluding to the, uh, the language laws that were passed uh, shortly yes, after the thank conflict you. in 2014. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so just to let people know what those are, yeah, I mean, this is one of the justifications that Putin likes to swing around um, when he claims that there's some sort of a genocide going on against Russian speakers in Ukraine. Spoiler alert: there's not. Um, uh, otherwise, Peace Corps wouldn't have been teaching us Russian. Uh, so, um, yeah, what what they what this what this law did was make the Ukrainian language like the mandatory and official language for use on things like state documents, um, contracts. Uh, the official language in in the school system. Like, Andrew, like, throw anything else out there that I'm missing. Basically, like, in the public sphere, like, the way it's been described to me is, like, Ukrainian is the official language. It's okay to speak Russian in your daily life. Most people sort of use it as the lingua franca, especially uh, in the city centers. But uh, if you were to make some sort of public appearance or do something very official, like, you're going to use Ukrainian for that.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Okay.
0: Cool. Um, So with that, I kind of want to move us several several hundred years into the future from where we've been discussing to the Soviet Union. Obviously, I think uh, a lot of listeners in the West will know that Ukraine was definitely under the Soviet sphere uh, during the Cold War and during that time period. So I want to open up the floor again to you guys and help us get a better understanding of what that relationship between Moscow and Ukraine was like during the 75 uh, year, give or take rule of the Soviet Union.
2: Mike, I'm gonna take first stab and you can clean up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Sam, you're exactly right. Um, Ukraine, uh, became part of the Soviet union, um, right after the, the Bolshevik revolution, uh, there was for a short time, um, an independent Ukrainian state kind of right before, um, the Soviet union, um, became its, its empire as it were. Um, but in the 75 years since, right. Uh, Ukraine was a Soviet Socialist Republic of the the 15 um, that were in the Soviet Union, and this is where Putin gets a lot of his imperialistic, chauvinistic ideas about Ukraine, is he's a big USSR guy. He's often quoted as uh, Ukraine, or the the fall of the Soviet Union was the, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. And so when you think from that kind of perspective about, about the world and about Eastern Europe and Eurasia, um, Ukraine being the, just a constituent republic um, and Russia being the, the charmed leader of the Soviet Union and the, the ties that he sees between um, Russians and Ukrainians, but Ukrainians as um, a smaller kind of constituent republic of what, of this great Russian and Soviet empire – um, it's easy to kind of see where he gets his kind of ideas that are so problematic and that have informed um, his thinking and actions today. Um, so that's exactly right, that Ukraine was a constituent republic of the Soviet Union, but was seen as kind of um, a, like a, a little brother almost of um, in Moscow um, of the charmed kind of Russian Soviet Socialist Republic.
0: Yeah. And Mike, I'm going to let you jump in here in a second. But one thing I know from talking with both of you guys is that the junior senior nature of Ukraine and Russia, respectively, during the Soviet Union didn't just come about strictly through there. Am I right? Like there was sort of a similar subservience going on prior to the Soviet Union as well. Right. Or is that
1: completely off base? It's not completely off base. It's just that Moscow was always a more centralized and just more solid political entity than Kiev and Ruthenia and Ukraine ever was. Like Andrew alluded to, Ukraine didn't really have its independence but for a very brief time following their war for independence, which lasted from 1917 to 1921. Um, Whereas, you know, the Russian Empire, obviously they have a history that goes back all the way to Peter the Great.
2: I think part of this uh, history is the Russian imperial history is... History of invasion, especially when we talk about Ukraine, the Russian Empire back in um, centuries ago, right, fought the Cossacks who were trying to build an independent Ukrainian state. Um, It was the Cossacks and the Swedes uh, against the Russians, and the Russians ended up winning. And so that that animosity has been going on for centuries, but it's been a a a tradition almost or a, a pattern, I would say, of Russian invasion and imperialism of of Ukraine on the the current lands of Ukraine.
1: Yeah, I mean, like the the junior-senior partner way in which you've described the relationship, it's not totally inaccurate, but, you know, Moscow didn't have complete control over these lands. Like the Cossacks were historically unruly uh, at times they fought with, at times they fought against the Russian Empire, um, and they really formed the core of what became the Ukrainian state later on. Um, Interestingly, the Russians definitely maintained that view that Ukraine was the junior partner. They referred to the Ukrainian language as little Russian was their diminutive term for it. Um, And they really saw it as a land full of resources to be exploited. It was, I mean, it was the bread basket basket of the Soviet Union for a reason. Um, It's incredibly fertile land. Like most, what, what, like, almost 70% of the world's black earth is located in Ukraine, if I'm not mistaken about that. Um, So it had tremendous strategic value to them. It also gave them the path directly to their only warm water port that they ever controlled in Sevastopol. Um, So, uh, you know, they had tremendous incentive for at least crafting this narrative that Ukraine was, you know, a little part of Russia and just part of Russia proper.
0: Yeah. So that's, um, so that, brings up two points that I want to uh, move forward to, and I'll let it be your guys' choice where we go from this. First of all is the geopolitics of Ukraine and the way the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union has viewed its Western Front. Uh, Unless I'm mistaken, most of that area is very flat and easy to maneuver about, so Russia has always seen its Western Front as needing defense, and it typically has done so through uh, simple land acquisition. Is that mostly right?
1: Yeah, I'd say it's mostly right.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, anything else you guys want to add? I think that's just important to help uh, give our listeners... No, I context. mean, that's
1: exactly correct. What you said earlier um, about the Russian history being a history of invasion is it's... You can't overstate how much that really dominates their political mentality, their political paranoia. And it's not without good reason. I mean, they've been invaded from the east multiple times by horse lords, right? And then from the west by the Germans and the French before the Germans um, and now they see expanding expanding NATO borders as another potential threat.
0: So, so um, we're going to put a pin we're going to put a pin in that and come back to it later. I do want to get through the rest of history before we start talk, talk uh, discussing that point, but I think it's really important uh, to keep in mind um the other thing that we discussed is food and Ukraine being being uh you know one of the biggest bread baskets in the world, which brings us to uh, another point of history that I think is really important to make our listeners aware about, some might already, um, and that is the Ukrainian famine engineered by the Soviet Union. And if you guys could uh, just discuss that point.
2: Yeah, so this is the, Sam's referring to the what's called in Ukraine, the Holodomor, right? The Great Famine, which was 1932 and 1933. If we want to take ourselves back, this is um, getting to the height of Stalin and Stalin's purges. And Stalin, like Putin, also was trying to to, um, institute control over Ukraine and had similarly chauvinistic ideas about Ukraine, Ukrainians, Ukrainian culture and language. And you take what we just described as this incredibly fertile uh, area of land and created a famine, partially through just terrible collectivization policies and partly through just forced seizure of grain and other foodstuffs and created this famine that killed over a million people and was one of the, the greatest tragedies in Ukrainian history and has since been recognized by the European Union as a genocide of Ukraine. Right, and, and, it's, and it's recognized
1: Stalin. as such because it was intentional. This was not Correct. just oh no, a bad harvest hit the Soviet Union and people died because they didn't have enough food. They had, like, backing it up just a little bit, uh, the Ukrainians had a history of rebellion against the Russian Empire. They were historically problematic. When you read the primary sources, the Soviet leadership was keenly aware of this, as were the Tsars before them, Uh, right? I mean, that's what the Cossacks were, as we described earlier. Um, They made deliberate efforts to squash the Ukrainian identity, they being the Bolsheviks, right? Once they took control and had won their civil war, um, they took measures like banning the Ukrainian language once again and shooting you on the spot at one point in time uh, if you spoke it in public, uh, or carting you off to Siberia. They deliberately went after the heads of Ukrainian culture and intellect. So if you were a professor, you were probably purged. If you were a poet or an artist or one of their blind tellers of tales, right? Those those uh, the the blind men who would sort of pay their way in the world by preserving the oral history of the country, and they would go from town Tub to zones. town. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, deep, deeply set Ukrainian tradition, those people were just straight up killed uh, on the spot. Um, so with that in mind, the famine was, like, the failure of the collectiv- collectivization policies were known. Again, primary documents show, like, Stalin himself knew that these policies were not working. His entire cabinet knew that they were not working. But you couldn't oppose the guy. Um, you like, good luck going to Stalin and telling him that his policies aren't working, maybe you have a better idea, because then you'd be purged as well. Um, so,
0: so real quick, I, I want to clarify one point, you know, as, as we know, um, communism has led to starvation in most parts of the world, almost all parts of the world where it's tried, uh, you know, obviously, the Great Leap Forward was a catastrophic event in Chinese history. So just really draw it out for our listeners, how was this different from just failed communist policies in general?
1: I think it's the intentionality that I just described, right? Like this was a man – this was a forced famine Um, because Ukraine was fertile and the rest of the country was going through a food crisis. um, It was politically expedient. uh, It it just served a – it served a pacification objective as well. Um, He who controlled the food back then controlled the country essentially. Um, and so it wasn't just Ukraine that suffered. I mean Belarus did to an extent as well, but Ukraine really got the worst of it in part because there was this motive to take them out, so to speak. Um, and, and, and let's and, like, be, yeah, go on. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, one more one more piece of evidence to my point is that as the Ukrainians were dying or being shipped off, they were moving Russians into these towns. And so when you see the maps today that are deeply shaded, like, red coded for Russian-speaking and then blue coded for, you know, the, the pro-EU Ukrainian-speaking part of the country, that is because the industrial—like, most of those parts of the eastern country were deliberately russified, deliberately, like, resettled by ethnic Russians.
0: Yeah. And there's you know, just a, just a um, parallel that comes to my mind right off the bat is what's going on in Shenzhen uh, today in terms of the Uyghur minorities being, uh, you know, the men shipped off into detention camps. And in some cases, Uyghur women um, being forcibly resettled with new Chinese, Han Chinese husbands. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Andrew, anything you want to add or I think or should we move uh, forward in history?
2: Yeah, we can move forward. I would just quickly say that... Um to your point, Sam, this is a, the Holodomor was a combination, right, like Michael mentioned, of intentionality um, that served a political purpose to pacify Ukrainians through really mass slaughter. Um, it was failed communist policies of collectivization. And not only that, just straight up requisition of grain, just taken away from Ukraine on purpose to starve Ukrainians to serve a political goal um, for Stalin.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um,
1: I don't think, I don't, real briefly before we moved yeah. on, I don't think that we mentioned the scale of what this famine actually was. Mm-hmm. There's obviously, the Holocaust is famous for its 6 million Jews that it left dead. The Holodomor left nearly that many, like at the very least 3 million. Uh, some estimations do go up to almost 6 million. Though those are probably exaggerated, but, you know, a safe estimate is between 3 to 5 million Ukrainians were killed um, in, this, in this famine.
0: Unless there's anything, uh, you know, you guys want to discuss further in history, I think the next crucial point to help our listeners understand is really moving forwards towards the end of the Soviet Union, the dissolution. uh, And then really importantly, Ukraine, both A, the fact that it had nuclear missiles or nuclear weapons, how it came to have those and how it came to give them up. I think this is a really crucial point to understand uh, what's going on in Ukraine today, because obviously, I think Putin's calculations would be very different if he was invading a country that had the capacity to launch a nuclear strike into the Russian population centers, i.e.
2: Moscow. Sure, yeah, I can I can take first stab at this. So, um, right, the Soviet Union starts to fall apart in the 80s. The Warsaw Pact countries start to gain independence in 89. And things don't look good from Moscow and elsewhere in the Soviet Union. And in 1991, Ukraine holds um, a referendum on independence and over 90% of Ukrainians support independence from the Soviet Union and they become an independent country and the Soviet Union collapses, right? But to your point, Sam, um, the Soviet Union being a nuclear power has nuclear weapons stores all across its territory, particularly in Ukraine and in Kazakhstan. So as Uh, Ukraine is charting its own independent path in the early 90s, and the West is trying to figure out, okay, how do we deal with these new, newly independent states and countries, and how do we deal with um, a newly independent and actually very unstable at the time, Russia? Um, The question of nuclear weapons became a huge part of this. And I'll go right into the the Budapest Memorandum if you guys want me to. Yeah, Yeah. So in 1994 in right, a bid to, um, in part, just get rid of nuclear weapons on, in, in the heart of Europe, really, because uh, Ukraine had such a um, large stockpile of these nuclear weapons, the U.S., um, Russia, the U.K. or, UK or France, and um, Ukraine set up this meeting in Budapest, and they draft what's called the Budapest Memorandum. And the Budapest Memorandum, if we're paraphrasing, said ukraine will give up its nuclear weapons in exchange for territorial integrity and full sovereignty and right to choose its path as a country everybody signed everybody agreed and ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons and as we know 20 years later um, those chickens would come home to roost when russia um, invaded eastern ukraine and illegally annexed crimea
0: yeah, I'm going to let Mike jump in in a second, but there's just one parallel that I want to draw, again, to China, um, <clears throat> which is the handover of Hong Kong from the British to the Chinese administration, in which Hong Kong was similarly guaranteed sovereignty, at the very least for 50 years, not, indepe- not indefinitely like Ukraine. But uh, again, within 25 years, the larger, more powerful country bordering it made a reacquisition bid, and I think we all know how the, that's turned
1: out in Hong Kong. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I, I do want to... I don't know that I have a determinative analysis to give here, but I want to provide a little bit of context around what happened with the nukes. Um, A, it's very likely that even if the Ukrainians had kept their nuclear arsenal at the time, they probably would not have been able to afford to maintain that arsenal. At least that's the allegation. Uh, B, I don't think the Soviet Union, or at least like Russia at the time, really had the resources to... Start a conflict to keep Ukraine from leaving its orbit So like this this was the deal Made to do this in the bloodless way The Ukrainians said okay well you know We don't really have a use for these nukes anyway We're never going to want to nuke Russia um, And then the Russians <laughs> just said <laughs> 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 And then the Russians <laughs> <laughs> said, we don't want to start a land war with NATO this close right now anyway, and why bother? Um, NATO's already promised they're not going to expand their borders uh, any further east, nyuck, nyuck. Um, though, actually, I don't know if that was agreed upon before or after that uh, new Ukrainian nuclear decision. But um, so, so I think that is important to understand. Um, it's not like, I don't think it's like Ukraine just got royally screwed at the time, question mark. Um, well, but I mean, that that's is, a hindsight question. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, at the time, right, they definitely and- didn't view it that way.
0: Yeah. Um so want to move on to a couple more three more key events in Ukrainian history as I see it, which is the 2004, 2014 uh the 2004 2014 revolutions and then obviously, you know, that'll bring us up to today. So, um starting with 2004 known as the Orange Revolution, I believe. Um Andrew, you want to jump us you want to jump in and let everyone know what that was about?
2: Sure. Yeah, so 2004, Ukraine's been independent for 13 years. They have a presidential election between uh, Viktor Yushchenko and Viktor Yanukovych. Viktor Yanukovych, seen as slightly more pro Russian, uh, Yushchenko, slightly less so, um, or less so, I would say. And Yushchenko wins by a margin, but it's not declared that way. Um, Yanukovych through ballot rigging and other kinds of um, electoral interference is declared the victor. But it's really incredibly obvious to Ukrainians who won and they take to the streets and relatively peacefully um, overturn these false election results. And Viktor Yushchenko is declared the president um, of Ukraine and rightfully. So in this matter, and it was was a really good example, right, of peaceful, like, democracy and and will of the people in Ukraine. Um, I'd like to actually jump in and make a point here if I
1: could, if I could. Um, So note the date here, right? We're talking about 2004 and Ukraine gained its independence in 1991. And even at the time of 1991, like, that was a very large percentage of the population that voted Um, To be independent. This included the regions ostensibly of pro-Russian Crimea and modern-day Donbass, right? Um, These were not 14-year-olds out on the street in 2004 during the Orange Revolution. Like these were older, more mature Ukrainians who grew up in the Soviet Union and supposedly shared this common heritage uh, with the Russians, which they're now trying to spin as this unbreakable bond, this like total anomaly for Ukraine to be independent or want independence, right? Uh, you can see, I, I think this is ample evidence to the point that that narrative just does not hold water. Um, and I, will, I would like people to keep that in mind as we go forward and get on to, into t- 2014. But Andrew, I'll let you uh, wrap up your discussion of 2004.
2: No, Mike. I think that's that's a really good point, point. Um, and just I, I think to wrap up, right? Wrapping up 2004 really takes us kind of towards Maidan, um, right? Because Viktor Yushchenko becomes president, and then in 2010, Yanukovych comes back and wins, right? And this pro-Russian politician becomes the president of Ukraine, um, and that leads us kind of into uh, the 2014 Maidan.
0: Yeah, so let's let's get right into it. Um, right, right, right.
1: Obviously. Yeah. So, so hold on, hold so, on. So to wrap okay. that up, so to wrap that up, what, what you're saying is, so the guy who cheated in 2004 ended up winning later after having after it was basically proved that he had rigged the ballot, right?
2: <laughs> That's exactly right. And it, well, and wow. he won in a, like a legitimate, relatively legitimate way. And like, hmm. there's democracy for you.
1: Yeah. Like, okay. Ukrainian democracy, which is very chaotic. <laughs> <in a way. laughs> yeah Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah. So bringing us to 2004, uh, I think, or excuse me, 2014, known, a date with regards to Ukraine, more well-known in the West for the invasion of Crimea. But preceding that, there wasn't another election that we've been alluding to. So what what ended up happening there?
1: Mike, you want to do it? Andrew, I think you've got the facts down pat for how the elections actually went, and then I'll piggyback off of you. Sure. Um, So
2: it's 2013. And we've had three years of Viktor Yanukovych and Ukraine is still, while they have a kind of pro-Russian leaning president, it's still on its Euro-Atlantic trajectory and is offered an association agreement with the European Union, which is what you get when you're on your way to European Union membership, right? This it's is like a, being a pledge. Ex- yeah, it's pledging the European <laughs> Union, exactly, right? You're, you're on your way um, and these are long processes, but this is a good step. And so Yanukovych agrees this association agreement. But then weeks later, Putin flies him out to Moscow and says, no, no, no. Here's this big pile of cash. We're gonna bribe you to go back on that agreement and you're gonna sign this, this deeper cooperation agreement with Russia. Yanukovych, being a good corrupt politician that he is, says, My hands are. Which we've already established. We've already established corruption. Being the good corrupt politician he is, he's like, sure. Um, So, right, so he signs this new deal, this new agreement with Russia, and this association agreement with Europe is kind of null. And Ukrainians are furious about this. They see this for what it is. It's a corrupt backroom move that benefits Yanukovych and other elites. So they take to the streets in nonviolent protest again, and this became Euromaidan, right, to, to orient Ukraine once and for all toward Europe. And after, this is the winter of 2013, going into 2014, um, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians in the main square in Kyiv. And then the Yanukovych regime takes some steps to try to break this up, and they can't. And so, uh, right, there's there's some bouts of minor violence, and then a huge escalation, the Yanukovych regime fires on live rounds on protesters and dozens of people are killed. And this spirals everything into this broader struggle for, um, Ukrainian democracy and kind of the essence of the Ukrainian state. Um, and that winter Yanukovych is finally deposed and he flies off to Moscow. We actually don't know where he is right now. Um, but right. This pro Russian corrupt leader in Ukraine has been vanquished And Ukraine starts its restarts, right? It's it's Euro-Atlantic trajectory. But at around the same time, Putin sees this and is like, uh uh-uh, he... Before, so men. so so
1: so before so before we yeah, get into on, the Crimea on, yeah, and the Donbass thing there's actually I want to address uh some of the contentious points around Maidan because sure. this gets controversial like even I remember when I went to a pro Belarusian democracy protest when Lukashenko won his last round right right after Corona um there was a lady I spoke to who said no this revolution in Belarus right now it's different it's not going to be another Maidan and that really struck me like wait what you What's your impression of Maidan if, you're, if you are pro-liberty, democracy, Belarusian, really? Um, so a lot of people have this impression that Maidan was this Western-engineered, Western-puppeteered, puppet, w- uh, and Western-financed operation. Like you have all these people waving signs in English and, you know, buses arriving on schedule, and it all just seemed really eerily well-coordinated.
0: <laughs> That's the giveaway. Uh, buses arriving on schedule. <laughs> <in> Ukraine, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> How strange.
1: Um, yeah that like that is the allegation i by but by it's whom? not by the kremlin primarily who's known for not exactly having the most honest track record okay um and that that misinformation gets spread around quite a lot like were we on the ground there was the cia involved they're really like all i can say is there's no definitive evidence to that point um was there some western money uh, maybe maybe a little bit but at the end of the day this started with the ukrainians and it ended with the ukrainians storming the you know storming the presidential uh Area. I don't know. I can't remember exactly how it ended, but um, uh, it, it, they kind of like issued this ultimatum on the last day of the protest where they said, like, we're going to come after you if you don't leave. And then he finally left, Yanukovych, that is. Um, uh, and so then that leads directly into Donbass being Donetsk Oblast, at least rebels in Donetsk Oblast and Luhansk Oblast, uh, voicing their intention to separate, agitated on by Russian propaganda um, I can't remember if that happened exactly before or after the Crimean annexation. I think, Andrew, you were about to get on a roll with that, if you want to go back to well, yes, yeah, so, little so, so real
0: quick, before, before Andrew gets in, I actually want to um, kind of push back a little bit on what you're saying insofar as, you, you know, let's, let's be fair uh, to Russia, you know, to our listeners and everything. How come the allegations of Western propping up a political movement are you know are, are we're able to more categorically deny whereas you know the language you were using about the two regions being russia backed um was much more concrete like i, I that that notice that, that struck me you know kind of as an incongruity in the language and um was wondering if you'd be able to just address that
2: so you're talking about like russian backed and like donbass yeah. in
1: particular yeah well
0: mike mike was referring to the russian-backed donbass you know meanwhile there's there's essentially you know, he was saying similarly, there's allegations that the West was propping up the um, pro-EU side of the the election. You know, how how much evidence is there that, Mike was already saying that there's less evidence about the uh, West involvement, but how much is there of the Russian uh, support, I guess?
1: Well, to start, the people in Donbass were fighting with actual Russian soldiers side by side, Uh, Mm -hmm. whereas we definitely did not have that at Uh, Mm Maidan. But Andrew, I think you were about to add something.
2: Oh well, yeah. I think that's that's where I was going to go. So, there's there's Russian regulars, there's Russian weapons fighting in Donbass. There are
1: all of which uh, the Kremlin denied for a very long time.
2: Yeah, and like still denies which to an nobody, extent. Yeah. Nobody believes. There are uh, Duma uh, MPs in the Russian state Duma who admit as much that uh, we funded these uh, so-called separatists in Donbass. We fought alongside them, and you know basically saying this the quiet part out loud while official kremlin the official kremlin line right is is that this is a ukrainian civil war which is yeah i mean just there were the some case. great
1: pieces of investigative journalism back when this conflict yeah. broke out that definitively proved from the very beginning there were russian soldiers masquerading as dnr and lnr separatists uh, and, I mean, yeah, the propaganda machine was turned up to a 12, just like it is now. Um, I mean, to give you an idea of how serious this machine is, there are people in Russia, in Crimea, right now, like, second-order connections to me through my connections at Peace Corps, who do not believe that there is a war happening right now in Ukraine. That is the extent to—that is the actual power of the Russian propaganda machine. And that was levied against the people in DNR and LNR.
0: Yeah, so— it, um Unless there's any, do you, first of all, do you guys have anything else we need to add about the actual invasion? But one thing I, I do want to get to after uh, you guys jump in on that is the, why Crimea? Why is this uh, peninsula so important to Russia? Obviously, you know, it could have, well, I'm assuming they could have fermented um, insurrection almost anywhere within the country on the, the eastern side that is more pro-Russian. But what was the geopolitical, geostrategic objective in taking Ukraine that Putin seized upon in 2014?
1: Three words, warm water port. Yeah, I mean, you his- want to expound upon those two yeah. words. I mean, <laughs> Russia does not have another ice-free, year-round, warm water port for its navy, right? The navy is obviously a very important instrument for global power projection. It's kind of seen as, you know, that ba- baby's first real, true step towards global empire. Um, and Russia didn't have one, uh, and historically, they always wanted it. They pushed for Crimea multiple times, even dating back to their imperial ages, right? Pre-Soviet Union, they fought many wars with Turkey and the, or, or excuse me, really the Ottomans um, over this piece of land. Uh, it also doubles as kind of like an area denial shield in the Black Sea uh, against potentially like a NATO-led navy. Um, like you, you, you can't really like threaten the Russian homeland, which, by the way, like if you look at a map of Russia directly east of Crimea, there's this really like, not, like thin by Russian standards, but an easily like cut-offable stretch of land. Uh, that go like goes down like between the Caspian Sea and the Sea of Azov, and everything beneath that. There's a lot of there's a lot of Russia's oil is in that area. It was one of the key strategic objectives of the German army in World War II. It's why they fought so hard uh, to to break through at Stalingrad because this was a very valuable and vulnerable underbelly of the Russian Empire. And Crimea kind of acts as a safeguard to that, while also granting them some decent access to oil deposits. But the real, real strategic benefit is that warm water port for the Russian Navy.
0: So, something that our listeners may have heard is that the Ukrainian administration of Crimea is essentially a clerical era at the dissolution of the Soviet Union. This is a point that I have heard made um you know that that Crimea should have been part of the Russian Empire or or excuse me russia post Soviet Union but as a result of Soviet Union bureaucratic maneuvers, it was given over to Ukraine just to have them administer it because Ukraine had more bureaucrats than Russia at the time, and this is just how it is. So the fact that um, Ukraine prior to 2014 controlled the Crimean Peninsula at all shouldn't have been a case, and Putin was just taking back what is rightfully Russia's and should have been Russia's at the dissolution of the Soviet Union.
2: Well, I'll go kind of two points on that. One, I want to track back to, to why Crimea very quickly. So Michael said like, warm water port. I think there's absolutely some strategic, um, a lot of uh, strategic significance to Crimea, but it also plays quite a large role in the Russian popular imagination um, where Crimea was vacation land for a lot of people in the Soviet Union. Um,
1: They had to settle for Georgia after that. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Well, um, but uh, back to your, your question just now, Sam, Crimea is one of these pieces of land in the Black Sea that has changed hands so many times in the course of history,
1: right? It doesn't really belong to anyone, right? In a lot yeah, of if ways. It belongs Historically to anyone, speaking, it, it belongs, never really belonged to any one group of people for all that long.
2: And if it belongs to anyone, it, it belongs to the Crimean Tatars who've been persecuted by uh, the Soviet Union, by Stalin, and now by um, Putin. Now. But so you, the so Crimea was. Kind of added on to the Ukrainian SSR by Nikita Khrushchev in the 50s and 60s, and that the borders uh, when Ukraine became independent in 1991 were kept the same as what it was in the Ukrainian SSR. That includes I might may also make this point: Bessarabia, Ukrainian Bessarabia, right, the Budyak region, and that's right. If you look on a map, it
1: doesn't necessarily it make, has no business being ukrainian real. yeah it doesn't
2: necessarily <laughs> make sense to be part right but but this is how these borders were drawn but nobody would dispute that that's part of ukraine
1: well i mean andrew you literally lived there and i lived Peace there, yeah. so 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 what language did, what languages did you hear spoken in that area
2: yeah we heard russian ukrainian moldovan romanian right it was all over the place bulgarian we, right yeah exactly in Kato's um,
1: site right yeah um I mean, this was this was like just another – I mean, just a side note. Like this was another ploy um, on the part. I think, I think it was Stalin who originally came up with that border of like that Soviet republic kind of to prevent – he did this heavily in Central Asia with the different stands, right? He would draw borders to segregate different groups of people to keep them from uniting and becoming a unified force against his rule. Uh, and so that – maybe it, maybe that plays part into the decision to keep Crimea where it was. Um, I do want to mention like Crimean reality was always a bit of a melting pot owing to how many like the Italians controlled it at one point. the Ottomans controlled it. The Golden Horde and the Tatars, the Ukrainians, the Russians. and all those languages and ethnic groups are were and still are to an extent present. Uh, maybe maybe also the Italians, right? But uh, we're present in Crimea. So it's like, you know, I, I, I guess at this point in history, yes, the uh, Russian ethnicity and Russian language dominated uh, Crimea. and, I mean, I guess if you're asking for my evaluation, like, I, I'm i a good-fashioned, you know, democ- like believer in democracy. If they want to vote to go a certain way, you know, maybe that could be fine, but you don't do it the way that the Russians did.
2: Yeah, to put a bow on it really quickly, right, Crimea has been parts of different countries and empires for centuries. It was part of Ukraine, and it is not a justification to violate international law and a country's sovereignty to just take it the way that Putin did.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um so that brings us up to today. Obviously there are things going on in 2022 that um you know the fog of war creeps deep right now. There's a lot of stuff we you know there's reasonable information but I think uh that's a little bit beyond the scope of what we're discussing today. Uh there's you know if you're looking for more accurate up to the minute reports I think there are other sources to check out. But you know kind of in the spirit of this podcast one thing I've been trying to do is answer the question, uh, <clears throat> or really respond to some of the c- claims that Russia more generally has been making. Obviously we just touched on Crimea, but, um, you know, so I want to, I want to wrap that up with a few more topics along those lines. First of which is, um, <clears throat> you know, NATO expansionism and the, I I guess I would call it oversensitivity towards Russia's ambitions within its own regions. Um, you know, <clears throat> again, I'm struck by a very memorable, uh, quote that I heard Right, right up to the invasion, you know, in the weeks before, where uh, a news report was discussing the massing of Russian troops along the Ukrainian border, to which uh, someone retorted, "You mean Russia, Russian troops moving within Russia?" So obviously, it was the pretext for an invasion. But at the same time, um, you know, I'm just going to throw the floor open to you guys. How much of Russian aggression with regards to Ukraine is a response? To We mentioned earlier, the Russian Empire needed that land buffer to uh, secure its Western flank. How much of what's going on today is a result of maybe some poor decisions taken in the West?
1: Well, let's back up a little bit about this, because this this comes down to a difference in political structures and political values that I don't think—I think people in the West are just now really starting to wake up to— with regards to Russia when you really see what his motives for taking Ukraine out or reabsorbing it are. Um, so yes, we ostensibly made some promises at the fall of the Soviet Union that we were not going to expand NATO borders eastward and then promptly you know added uh, the Czechs and the Slovaks and the Hungarians and the the, the Baltics right up to the point where it's, we're like 400 miles away from St. Petersburg. Um, I'm not going to get into whether that was a mistake or not. What I will say is that these countries did so of their own volition. They expressed willingness and very strong desire to move towards NATO. They saw what happened in the West. And and obviously, like, on a material level, like, the West was and continues to be light years ahead of the Soviet Union and Russia today, right? Um, But moving past that, like, you have to understand that the Russian political system does not survive with viable democracies right on its doorstep, especially in a place where, like, they see it as a, like, a brother nation. Um, they have been very clear, like, they believe in maintaining their strong central government system. Putin does style himself as a new czar. Uh, so, like, us in the West with NATO, like, we, we, we saw it as a fundamentally defensive alliance, right? Um, we never expected that this was going to happen. We had no intention of attacking Russia, but Russia didn't believe that. And given their history of invasion, you know, I I almost don't blame them for it. Um, Andrew, you have anything that you want to pop in with?
2: Yeah, I think on NATO enlargement, and there's there's a distinction between expansion and enlargement, um, U.S. officials who were at this so-called, at this meeting uh, in which U.S. officials to the Russian telling of it promised that NATO wouldn't um, expand any further than its current borders at the time, actually dispute that account. So I don't think it's a, f- we can't take it as fact that the US and NATO made some big promise that they wouldn't um, include other countries who wanted to be part of NATO and to be part of the West. We can't, right, That that's, that's not, um, we can't take that as fact. And... Um, I would say, right to your point, Sam, when we're talking about Russian troop movements in Russia and NATO troop movements in NATO countries, NATO troops are in small numbers in a defensive force posture in the Baltics and Germany and Romania, and they're only adding because of the Russian force posture, um, which was hundreds of thousands of troops encircling Ukraine, in a manner that looked like they were going to attack. NATO troops have never arrayed in a way that forestalled um, an attack on Russia. That just um, hasn't happened. And so it's, it's really, um, there are troop movements and there are troop movements. I would say, uh, when we talk about try to make this this NATO versus Russia um, military equivalencies. These things are different, and we need to understand that.
1: It's like, yeah, the, the United States did maintain bases in places like the Baltics and Germany and Italy. Like, I get it. Um, and, you know, it, it's a very valid thing to point out. You know, we might not re- respond so well to Russian bases in Cuba. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, but we never had the, the, the quantity of soldiers required to push into Russia, whereas Russia like routinely has like the bulk of their troops are mounted in the West and always have been. Um, we would like, if, if Russia had just wanted to blitzkrieg the, the EU, they could have just steamrolled most of the Baltics, Like e- even into modern day. Like we would not have had the force presence to repel something like that. It has never been an offensive presence. I think Andrew's very much correct to point that out.
2: And Michael, I think you hit on something really, really important that the Russian system Currently can't survive with um, vibrant democracies on its borders. Right at some point, Putin's authoritarian kleptocracy that he's built, um, Russians will see. Right, well, it it's, must... at least, it,
1: it's at least a very serious threat. Like they've done yes. a pretty good job surviving so far, and maybe they can continue to do so. But they so, obviously, so one,
2: yeah. Before before we
0: go too deep down yeah. this line of reasoning, and we are going to have to. Wrap things up fairly soon, but I do I do want to push back. You know, one other notion that you do hear uh, in the West is that you know in the post-Soviet collapse, under Boris Yeltsin, for instance, things were even worse than the Soviet Union, and it really was Putin coming in as a singular guy under his leadership that life actually did improve for Russians um, <clears throat> after that. And you know his support, you know he routinely gets sixty percent support in the polls and this is you know one thing i've heard is that this is not north korea that that might actually you know or you know kim jong un has a 99.99% uh, approval rating that that 60% might actually be legitimate
1: well let me let me jump in first then andrew can mr he 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 can piggyback back off of me but like you know it, it With regards to Russia in the '90s, I mean it would be very, very difficult to do a worse job than drunk Boris Yeltsin, like commanding the Duma uh, with like beer in his hands. Essentially, like the dude was an absolute nightmare. Russia still had a wealth of national resources, and Putin basically just introduced stability to a country that, left to its own devices, would be successful. Um, And they did. And like, and then of course, like oil prices helped them tremendously. Like he unleashed Russian gas and oil, and that's what made them so successful. It wasn't as much you know, economic reforms, like they displayed some of the wealth that we see in the West. It was not be, due to tremendous economic liberalization, although they became you know much more closely integrated with the West. Um, Andrew, do you want to say anything else?
2: Well, as we enter kind of the what some folks call the crisis of late Putinism, right, where um, repression is increasing in Russia and economic growth is stalling or is, in fact, decreasing, Um I think we'll see more and more challenges to the Putin regime and, and the position um, or the trade-off that Putin has given to those 60% of supporters, Sam, I think even if we take that number as like at, at its face value, that trade-off of stability um, for, right, you, you mortgage your, your freedoms and you mortgage um, kind of for stability and some economic growth becomes increasingly untenable as Putin fails to hold up his end of that bargain, and we see more and more kleptocracy. So, and I think we've only seen an acceleration of that um, in the past few weeks. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, I want to bring us to a close by answering the most important question that we've been perhaps tap dancing around this entire time, which is Ukraine is, you know, give or take 4,000 miles away from the United States, it's a, you know, second world country, third world, uh, you know, does not have the world's biggest GDP, world's biggest population, it's not a member of NATO, it's not a member of the EU, Um, you know, I think it is important to be able to answer for all of the West and, you know, all the countries that are considering giving support, whether it's financial, military, troop. Whatever aid to ukraine. Why should we care?
1: Well, you know, I think You know given that we're recording this on february 28th as of now Switzerland finland and sweden have like finally joined the ranks of the countries imposing economic sanctions and delivering lethal aid to the russians Breaking very long-standing trends of historical neutrality, right? Um, Switzerland guys like switzerland is no longer neutral Um, So I think the world has already decided that this is a threat. This cannot stand. Why? because the Western rules-led you know, global order has been the greatest force for peace that the world has ever known. Um, as was pointed out by another podcast that I thoroughly enjoy listening to, like Germany has finally been united for a longer period than any other point in its history. Like the world's looking brighter. Um, and you know, Ukraine has democratic yearnings. It's not perfect. It's deeply corrupt like all former Soviet republics, but it's attempting to move in that direction. It is a more pluralist society. Um, and I do think that is, you know, just to be a little bit jingoistic here, it, it's what the United States founders fought for. Uh, and personally, I think it is worth supporting.
2: Yeah, I mean, Ukraine is worth supporting because it's in US interest to do so. Uh, Putin's interests don't stop in the Carpathians. They don't stop in Ukraine. Certainly, he wants Ukraine under uh, in the Russian orbit. But we won't see an end to hybrid warfare or an end to russian menacing military maneuvers against the baltics or um in belarus we're not going to see that
1: which you'll be that, inviting that, if you don't answer this exactly this it, isn't yeah. going to
2: stop um, unless putin is stopped in ukraine um and so it's in us interest in the interest of the global world order where we want peace we want freedom and we want prosperity and the world that Putin wants to build is a threat to all three of those things, and so that is why the, it's in the U.S. interest and really in kind of the global, the the global so, like society's interest to stop Putin um, in Ukraine. And I think we are seeing that.
0: Yeah, uh, to answer my own question very briefly, I agree with uh, what you two guys have said, and for any of our listeners, just Google what's known as the hockey stick graph, and you can see the dramatic meteoric, exponential, whatever adjectives you want to use uh, to describe it, growth in human prosperity over the past really hundred years uh, through a period of relative peace, prosperity, economic integration, economic liberalization, and the alleviation of human suffering and increase in human flourishing and well-being that that's uh, derived as a result has been the greatest that the world has ever seen. And a land war on the European continent, the likes of which we've not seen in Coming up to a hundred years now, has the real likelihood to, uh, you know, totally undo that and bring about untold increase in suffering, uh, as a result. So unless there's anything that either of you two gentlemen want to add, I'd like to, uh, bring us to a close. Well, <clears throat> uh, thank you very much, dear listeners, for tuning in to this very special news bulletin. Hopefully, we've been able to answer some of your questions that you may have in the West about how did we get here, why is this going on today, and make you a little bit more informed informed as to the situation that's rapidly unfolding, again, and why you should care and why the Ukrainians need and deserve our support. And more than just for altruistic reasons, what that means as a benefit for the free world and the United States in particular. So thank you very much for listening.
1: Uh, Andrew, Mike, say goodbye. And thank you guys very much. See you guys. Thanks for listening. We are going to be doing more of this very soon. Thanks, thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it.